Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month I'm exploring some films of Jim Jarmusch as recommended by Kristen Sales, and this week I'll be talking about Jarmusch's most recent film from 2016, Patterson. Um, Let me preface something before I start this episode, I'm going to... Um, as I do in, uh, before many episodes, apologize, uh, right now for the potential sound quality, or I should say potential lack of sound quality, because it is currently 37,000 degrees in Brooklyn as I am recording this episode. So, um, in order to avoid a circumstance in which you are, um, listening to a podcaster pass out due to, uh, dehydration, um, I have left my windows open in my apartment. Um, and listeners who uh, have been with I Do Movies Badly for a long time know that I live above a sports bar, and as of recording of this episode, um, game five of the NBA Finals between the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, Rudy Obias' um, team, and the Golden State Warriors is occurring, and so there are people outside who are watching the bar, so I um, assume that at some point you are going to get um, exuberance or frustration and air conditioning noise and all sorts of things that will filter in from um, keeping these windows open. But for my own personal health and safety, uh, I figured I needed to do that. Um, And so why don't we begin the episode? And to begin this episode, um, I'm actually going to read a portion of somebody else's review, which I know is a little bit strange, um, but uh, before I even review the film to reference somebody else's, which I often do specifically with, uh, the late great Robert Ebert's review, Roger Ebert's reviews, sorry, I don't know who Robert Ebert is, but I'm sure he's, um, a wonderful film critic in his own right. Um, but it's because as I was doing research on and taking notes for this film, I stumbled across this review. By stumbled across, I mean I sought this review out, um, and there was a lot of it which just sort of, um, rung true to me, so I figured I, I, I wanted to, to read it. And, and this is actually, um, this is Matt Warren's review from Battleship Retention, which was posted on BattleshipRetention.com last year when the film came out. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of a snippet here, um, just the first two paragraphs, uh, because it, it sums up a lot of my thoughts, um, but then also brings to attention some things that I didn't really consider, and that kind of sent me down um, a rabbit hole, which kind of allowed me to um, extrapolate what I did think and, and what I did feel about how, how to respond to this movie. So, um, like I said, first two paragraphs. Look, I love Jim Jarmusch as much as any paunchy mid-30s white dude with an art degree from a major state-run university. Um, I did not go to a major state-run university, but that's pretty much the only place where we uh, diverge. And assuming you clicked on this review of your own volition, chances are so do you. And that's fine. But it's important, I think, for people like us to acknowledge that the world Jarmusch has been selling us for the past 30-plus years is, at its core, no less far-fetched or fantastical than any Middle-Earth orcathon or Star Wars space opera. In many ways, Jarmusch's fantasy version of a peaceful, languid, modern-day America populated by soulful, blue-collar bohemians is even more seductive and insidious than Avatar's Pandora. Throughout his films, Jarmusch's idealized version of Americana has essentially been little more than a hipster jazzbo remix of Norman Rockwell. It's the America we all fantasize about being a permanent part of when we were in college, learning about art and history, and budgeting serious creatives' time to sit in coffee shops with our sketch pads and moleskin notebooks to do whatever is was we fancied ourselves put on earth to do. 
and in Jarmusch's new Patterson, this invitingly fraudulent vision of America refined and perfected. Uh, this invitingly fraudulent version of America refined and perfected to an almost nuclear potency. I should say that this is actually a positive view. He goes on to talk about how none of that is negative, but it is um, very on point, which what I was thinking, and, and which, which, um, which, like I said, led me down to, to explore new thoughts about Jarmusch's stuff. But um, uh, it is, I, I mean, I guess when I was, after, after talking to Kristen, I guess I went into Jarmusch and Patterson kind of thinking that he was going to be an anti-indie filmmaker, like the uh, indie anti-indie filmmaker. I, I don't really know because I, I know what, or we all sort of have an idea of what indie filmmaking is these days, um, whether it's sort of the, the misery porn kind of stuff from, uh, that you, that you've kind of find in, in the, in the dredges of Sundance or the indie, uh, which is really just kind of studio light, uh, you know, stuff like Colin Trevorrow makes basically. And, and I thought Jarmusch was going to be sort of the answer to that stuff and that's not really what Patterson is and I have to assume what Jarmish is and I, but not in a bad way um, like Patterson has a lot of a lot of telltale signs of, of, of quintessential American indie filmmaking so for instance you know there there's um, you know there's a quirky relationship at the heart of it and I, I think you can say that about Patterson and his wife Laura uh, but I'm also thinking uh, more specifically Patterson and the dog Marvin there's sort of this uh, this quirky humorous but not really laugh out loud relationship which is sort of a, a, a leads to a very pivotal um for lack of a better term plot point later on in the film um you do have laura which is you know she she sort of fulfills the not even requirement but maybe embodiment of the you know the the manic pixie dream girl ish in a way you know she doesn't really um, save him or, or take him in any new direction uh but she, she sort of has a lot of the characteristics of that you know she's um, you know, her interests are fleeting and she jumps from one point to the next and she sort of lives on a, not lives on a different plane of, of reality, but her interests are different from what Patterson's are. Patterson's life and interest is very much about routine and what he's sort of doing and she sort of jumps from one thing to the next and has different ideas. She wants to get rich on cupcakes, but she wants to learn Spanish guitar and all this sort of stuff. And so they, they really are not polar opposites, but they are not the same person. Um, and then you know, the, this, the typical indie thing where you sort of have a, a protagonist who is working a job that is not typically considered or depicted in mainstream media. Um, uh, not only uh, of him being a bus driver, but also him being a poet at the same time. Ooh, and of course, um, but, 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 and so that, that's all, that's all stuff that you would see in the heart of a, of a quirky indie film, of a Mark Webb film, or Jonathan Dayton and Valley Ferris. Um, is it Jonathan Dayton and Valley? The, the people that made Little Miss Sunshine. But I, I mean, sort of, um, you could see this, but or, or those archetypes uh, or 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 narrative regularities, I suppose, kind of also being the part of a bad, sappy Hollywood light indie film. But there's a lot more to Patterson just that stuff, or or at least Jarmish is is using that stuff, but he's not subverting it. He just is using it in a way that supports the story he's trying to tell and the themes that he is trying to hit upon. Um, and, and I think, you know, as, as Chris and I discussed and as I referenced uh, with David Bax's preference for it, you know, there, there is something in Patterson about being content in your daily life and not, and not, not that you're not striving to be more than that, but you, you are content with where you are and you don't see a need to, to grow beyond that. 
Um, and I could see that in the film, but I also, cynical me inside of me, the cynical me that I'm trying to overcome on a daily basis, and, and which was certainly alive and well a year ago, two years ago when I started this podcast, also saw, um, or, or at least also could understand how someone could derive from it instead a story of someone who is stuck in his way and cannot elevate himself above his routine. Um, but the, the, the positive side of me, the one who kind of saw the contentment, um, or, or at least the, the wanted to relate to that, or did relate to that, and was somewhat inspired by that, which I'll, I'll get to in a, in a little bit. But I guess, first let me kind of get into... Um, I, I guess some of the things that I that I uh, that I appreciated about it, or, or that or that I saw this film kind of hinting at or, or touching upon, or really exploring. And I'm going to start with the locality of it taking place in Patterson, New Jersey, because of a personal bias. Because um, I grew up a couple towns away from Patterson, New Jersey. In fact, was uh, there not in Patterson, but in, in the town that I grew up in uh, just this past weekend for some birthday parties. And so, um, because of my New Jersey bias, um, you can remove the man from New Jersey, but you can't remove the New Jersey from the man. Because of that, I'm going to start with that. Um, and Patterson, you know, Patterson, the character, sort of having his foot in, or his feet in both worlds. You know, he is this blue-collar, working-class individual. You know, on a day-to-day basis, he is driving a bus, which, as a public servant, is an incredibly thankless and um, redundant uh, task a lot of times, but then he also uh, is is a poet in his spare time before he gets to work, and then when he's taking his lunch break, uh, you know, during work, and then afterwards, he is he is also a poet. He is of two minds, and I see that really being an echo of um, on a specific individual level. Obviously, because of this movie, I, I see that being um, sort of resembling Patterson, New Jersey, the city itself. But then also maybe seeing as Jarmish didn't come from New York, didn't come from New Jersey, came from Ohio. Also just being, you know, it could be something which could be said about a lot of American cities, you know, about um, maybe, I, I don't know much about the cities in Ohio, but maybe the, the cities where, where, you know, in Ohio where Jarmish came from, uh, maybe Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and certainly Patterson, which is this these cities in which... Um, not that they have no identity, but they are sort of at this point where they are sort of in a, a decades-long transition from one identity to the next. Um, Pittsburgh was, of course, a city that um, was built on industry, that industry being the steel industry, and that industry left. And then there was sort of this question of what sort of city is Pittsburgh not even trying to be, but then what do we know Pittsburgh as and uh, a brother of mine lived in Pittsburgh for a few years, and I visited a bunch of times. And there is a, there's certainly a burgeoning art scene there, but there is also um, um, but there is also this blue collar attitude to Pittsburgh, this working class uh, you know attitude, and, and you kind of get that in in the you know the the industry which which holds up. Not entirely, of course, um, but you know the, that everyone sort of recognizes Pittsburgh to be because I'm assuming most of you are not hockey fans. You don't care that the Pittsburgh Penguins just won their second of back-to-back cups just um, last night, as of the recording of this episode. But you kind of know them for the Pittsburgh Steelers, for football, for hard hitting, for being a team which you know is uh, you know is really known for the run game and pounding people down. And there is this work-intensive kind of attitude towards it. And Patterson isn't all that different from Pittsburgh in the sense that Patterson was, you know, in the 40s and the 50s, was a city that was built on industry, on um, linens and on textile uh, production. And a lot of that industry has largely left 
um, and in the uh, in, you know in the the white flight, a lot of the the as it as, as the name entails, a lot of the Caucasian uh, population left as well and headed out uh, you know further away into the suburbs into where they could have backyards and, and lawnmowers and cars and stuff. And Patterson is um, is not reeling, but you know it's also it, it itself too has sort of a a burgeoning sort of gentrification going on. But there is still. You know, if you take NJ Transit, if you take the main line, you know, the train from Hawthorne, you know, it has to co- go through it, and, and then Patterson, Clifton, et cetera, et cetera. You kind of go by a lot of um, a lot of abandoned buildings, a lot of old abandoned factories, some of which are sort of being repurposed into apartments and trying to, to generate or, or draw in a, a younger, um, hipper sort of population and try and get money back into the city. But there there is still just this idea of these cities that had this one identity, that had this pride, and now sort of have to be something else. Um, for the cities, that comes to out of necessity. You know, it has to adapt. But at least for Patterson, the character, it's sort of, he is both at the same time. He is a, 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 a reminder of the city's past, but then he is also a, uh, he is also indicative of what the city is is or is trying to become he is both he's living two worlds he's living in two worlds at the same time um and um i had a i had a thought and i completely lost what it was uh so i'll just keep going and talk about something else um but and 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 i i see that also in in uh oh right it was the pride thing sorry so just you know getting back to this idea of, of pride and what the city was we're reminded about that too, in the sense of the the wall that's in uh, the bar that Patterson goes to every night. You know, right behind you know Doc is sort of the wall of fame, and there's a little bit of conversation as to who is worthy of inclusion on that wall. And uh, of course, there, there's the obvious ones. You know, these groundbreaking, path-paving intellectual minds that are associated with Patterson, whether it be um, you know ones that the film mentions, such as William Carlos Williams, who was not um, uh, who did not live in Patterson but lived in Rutherford, but certainly wrote about Patterson as uh, as one of his book poems, which certainly tell you. But then also on on that wall too is um, uh, Floyd Vivino. <laughs> um, he's he's pretty much a a North Jersey local celebrity guy named Uncle Floyd who had a public access TV show and had this puppet and was featured in um, you know commercials for this old restaurant which no longer exists called Bochica Loops and. Um, Uncle Floyd, uh, you know, you may not know him, but, uh, you know, one of, I believe it was on his public access show that one of the very first, if not the first TV appearance of Bon Jovi uh, happened on Uncle Floyd. So Uncle Floyd was, you know, is this local celebrity. And, of course, there's William Carlos Williams, there's Allen Ginsberg. But also, um, I just do, doing some research, the, the Wikipedia pages, the famous people that have come from Patterson is incredibly long. I'm just going to read you some of them as well. Um, on top of, like we said already, Allen Ginsberg, William Carlos Williams, uh, Uncle Floyd. Um... Lou Costello, the film points that out. Lou Costello has his own statue in Patterson. Um, Patrick Warburton, uh, Victor Cruz of uh, you know formerly of the New York Giants, uh, the New York Football Giants. Um, J. Michael Straczynski, you know, film writer, comic book writer, and and many others. I mean, Patterson has bred this you know uh, uh, a, a notable crowd of creative people, of path-paving people, of people who excel in the fields that they work in, um, and not a whole lot of people know that, because now, especially in, in you know, in North Jersey, and the suburbs around it, Patterson's kind of known as more this broken-down city, and it's not really safe, and you don't really want to be there, you know, after, you know, after a certain time of night, um, 
And uh, I, I just find that dichotomy fascinating of how that exists in, in so many American cities, um, especially as industry has left and gone overseas, but then how it also, um, that dichotomy exists within Patterson, the character, because people are a lot more complicated than just that. They are not just this thing or that thing. They are sometimes both things. And um, I find that uh, how, how, um, how that is sort of the foil to him is his wife, who wife, girlfriend, I, I don't think it's, it's ever actually specified what relationship they have, but I believe it's supposed to be girlfriend. Um, and how she is the opposite and the foil of him, basically how she deals in black and white, literally how the curtains that she makes, the dresses that she's wearing, the cupcakes that she bakes, it's all, there's a black and white theme. And I don't see that as a bad thing, but just, you know, she is, um, I, I, I don't see it as a bad thing either that she is not settled on one thing or another, how she kind of jumps from certain things and she kind of is changing her identity and, and she is either black on this day or white on this day, whereas Patterson just sort of sits in what he is and he and what he is is both of those things. He is working class, but he also is elite. Um, that, that was the wrong term. I don't want to I don't want to make it seem as though working class people cannot be elite in one form or another, but he is both... Um, middle class and you know upper class as well and that is not a that is not supposed to be said with any judgment of any in any way shape or form um and and i just i just find that super fascinating and and also how how this this identity of this city is constantly not even changing but is revealing itself in different ways how you have the the beautiful scenery of Patterson Falls that he sits there for inspiration to write and that sort of thing. Um, but then there's also the, you know, the, the conversation that he overhears between the two construction workers on the bus. And you can only really tell they're construction workers because Jarmusch should make sure to include a shot of their feet and their dirty work boots. And their conversation, I find it fascinating how their conversation is basically all about almosts. You know, they're talking about um, romantic encounters that almost happened or that it was implied that they wanted it to happen but it didn't actually happen it didn't actually play out and I think there's something and, and he has a, a light smile on his face when he's overhearing that conversation when he's overhearing these other conversations especially you know the two kids that are then having a a very intellectual conversation those two kids by the way are the two kids who were at the center of Moonrise Kingdom if they looked familiar to you um, but it just this, this conversation of, of almosts and how he smiles, and how, you know, it, it's not even a conversation about what ifs, but it's a conversation of something that almost happened, and there's, I don't know, I, I find, I found it to be sort of like he finds an appreciation in the almost, you know? There's, because it, it's a way of looking at, 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 a, at a situation that could have happened but didn't happen, and not in a regretful way, not in a mournful way. You know, these guys aren't necessarily saying, oh man, I could have slept with this woman and I, I, I was such an asshole for not taking advantage of it. There's, they are, there's sort of a catharsis and an enjoyment and a rapport in these two stories that they're sharing about something that didn't happen. And there, there's something warm and comforting and sort of lovely about that. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's an exciting... Not, exciting is the wrong word. Um, but, but there's a... I guess for me personally, it was a refreshing sort of change of perspective in thinking of, um, you know, looking back on, on, on my life as, as I get older and kind of thinking like, maybe I should have done that, maybe I should have done that. And there's, there's a regret and there's a mournfulness about it. And this guy who is just driving this bus on this regular routine is sort of instead 
finding a, a joy and a, and a beauty and an art in in those situations, in those almost moments. Um, and I think that's that's what David was talking about and what, what people were kind of telling me about this idea of this movie about a guy who is just content, um, stripping away judgment um, or positivity or negativity of a situation rather than having to be a good thing or a bad thing that this situation almost happened but didn't happen rather than being good or bad it just is it just is a situation and you can derive beauty from that just because it it, it avoids a peak or a valley doesn't mean that there's not a value there and doesn't mean that 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 it is lacking art and inspiration as evidenced by there's this guy who is driving a bus who has not a lot of money who has an antagonistic relationship with a dog and still writes such beautiful poetry based on his everyday life um and, and, and I wrote here, you know, that there's the beauty and poetry found in the mundane. Um, I don't see it as, I, I don't see this movie as sort of saying like, you know, um, I don't necessarily see it taking a viewpoint of American beauty in the sense of, um, I don't know. I, I As soon as I started saying that, I realized I didn't have a way to explain what I was saying. But... Um, I, I do think both films, both Patterson and American Beauty, do have this idea of of, of espousing a shift in perspective. Um, but I but I, I feel like American Beauty is kind of like is either this or that, whereas Patterson is kind of saying like it, it just is. But there's beauty in there. You don't have to look around something or or something isn't blocking you. It's right there. It doesn't have to be something monumental or life-altering or life-changing for you to sort of realize like wow the beauty has been there all the time it's always been there and it's always going to be there um whether you know whether it's you've fallen in love or whether you have fallen in love a long time ago and you just wake up next to her or him every single morning and do your job in this complicated city there's beauty there as well. There's beauty in a conversation. There's beauty in a motley array and mix of people that you encounter in this regular, on this day-to-day basis on a bus or when you're walking to or from work. It, it's, it's always there. And that's not a... a, a, um, a I don't think it's supposed to be an artsy-fartsy, hoity-toity kind of thing in the sense of, like, you just got to change your, your perspective, man. I think it's just always there, and we're just getting lost or distracted by things like man, I got these bills to pay, or man, my team lost the game, topical, or um, man, this weather sucks, sorry, I'm, I'm really starting to sweat now, so it's really, it's really starting to get to me, um, I don't think it's a matter of, of, of needing to have your life change to recognize it, it's just, why does routine, and why does mundanity necessarily have to entail that specialness is gone? Or that beauty is gone. Um, one of the things I loved about um, how Jarmish wrote and structured this film was how it was repetitious, and how it starts with Monday, then goes to Tuesday, and sure enough, we're gonna do this. Me- we're gonna do this dance every single day until it's Sunday, and then the movie ends on a Monday again. And like I said, if you were cynical, you could say, "Wow, this guy is never gonna get out of this pattern. This is this is something that can't be broken." This is his Sisyphusian um, existence. I, I could certainly see how, depending on what state you're in emotionally or psychologically, you could derive that from this film, but I don't think that exists inherently within this film. I think instead, 
it is by structuring it that way Jarmish actually sort of structures this like a poem in the sense of every day is a new stanza the words may be different the interactions may be different but the general structure is the same thing Monday follows Tuesday Wednesday follows wait no, I'm sorry Tuesday follows Monday Wednesday follows Tuesday etc etc um, sort of like how, you know, a rhyme scheme, you know, um, well, or, you know, A will rhyme with A, but then the next stanza will be B, and then B will rhyme with B, the next stanza will be C, just like that. That's not a technical poetry thing, but just, you know, it's it, it just this idea of, um, of stanzas, of paragraph breaks. Um, and I, I even think that's reflected in, this is what I derive from it, at least, because I kept thinking to myself, like, why the hell is this, is, where, where does this motif of twins come from? The... Laura character introduced at the beginning she had a dream uh, uh, that involved them having twins and then we see it and I thought that would be a common thread you know then on Tuesday she'd wake up and say I had a dream about this um, and then you know it would be reflecting that day but once she said that she had a dream they were in ancient Persia and there were elephants and there was nothing really having to do with ancient Persia or elephants on Tuesday I kind of dropped that but then I kept thinking what what do twins have to do with anything especially because though they keep reoccurring throughout the film until I started thinking about this idea of, of the structure of the film being like the structure and stanzas of a poem, and then it hit me when he was having the conversation with a with little girl, and he said, you've got some good internal rhymes. And I just kind of saw it as, this is just part of Jim Jarmusch's poetry, that these twins reoccurring, that's his film's internal rhyme. Whether that's intentional or not, I don't know. I could certainly see how you could say that's bullshit, that's completely valid. But that's what I derived from it, and that's what helped me appreciate this or make sense of this of this reoccurring theme. Um, and then, of course, I was <laughs> not of course, um, but I was also reminded of um of of uh, I just wrote it down. Why can't I find it? Bright Star, um, Jane Campion's Bright Star, in which um, I believe that film resembled a poem as well, in the sense of the scenes depicted in Bright Star were not the scenes of high drama, but instead of the moments after high drama. I keep going back to this idea that, um, and I, I forgot all the characters' names in Bright Star. I know it has to deal with the relationship of a real-life poet, and that real-life poet who died, well, they all died, but that real-life poet, his death is depicted off-screen. We don't see his death. Um, his death, you know, we, we instead react to his death when, when she is told about it and she is broken down and she is going through an emotional low point. It's not the point, it's not the higher point of drama which is depicted in that. It's the high and low points of emotion, of reacting to that. And I think that resembles a poem as well because a poem is not a documentation. You know, nobody writes poetry as things are happening. You know, it's not, a poem is not supposed to be like I said, a documentation of something. A poem instead is sort of most times a reflection on something, reflection on feelings, a reflection of an experience. You know, you kind of write it after something is going on. You don't really, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know what else I can really say about that. But I, And so I, I sort of see that happening here in the sense of Patterson's character is finding the poetry not in the the moments of tension, and Jarmusch isn't focusing on the moments of high tension and, and life-altering stuff, but instead the, the, the mundane, the kind of times and moments when we actually sit down to write the work, when we, when we sit down to reflect on and process the art, it's just the normal day-to-day -day stuff, you know? That's when this stuff, you know, that's when inspiration hits us a lot of times, or at least that's when we're 
grappling with it and dealing with it and, and, and shaping it into something. It's during the regular stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's not during the, the moments of intense passion when you're not necessarily thinking coherently or clearly. You're, 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 set, you're instead sort of focused on one thing. Um, and I, I found that quite wonderful. And, and especially this, um, that Japanese character that Patterson runs to at the end who says, uh, I breathe poetry. The uh, the review it's not written by Roger Ebert obviously but the review of Patterson on the Roger Ebert website um, said something about maybe that's enough that we just breathe poetry of the recognition that it's there and that it's always there whether it's these intense high drama moments or just the the moments of driving a bus and overhearing a conversation why does that have to you know block it from existing and I I I think. That, that's why it also, why he's so, he's clearly not happy about it, but why there's not a, a, a sort of emotional breakdown or some type of high dramatic moment um, after the book is destroyed, after his book of poetry is destroyed, because he goes right back to writing. Because the inspiration is still there, just because your means or your method of expressing it or having expressed it is gone doesn't mean inspiration has left doesn't mean art is gone it just means that that one depiction or that one channeling of it is gone but if you breathe poetry if you're aware of it always being there and always existing you can tap into it again that's a source that is infinite it's never going to leave it's it, it doesn't matter whether you have a book to write it down it doesn't matter whether you're on a mountaintop uh, or on a couch in Patterson, New Jersey. It's always going to be there. It's always going to be available to be tapped into. Um, and, I, and I think that, that that's wonderful. And, and it, it was certainly very helpful to me at the moment of watching this. I, I, I talk about this all the time, and, and I'm, I'm sorry if I get really redundant in this podcast. I mean, over the years, it's just going to happen. But how much subjectivity comes into play in art and not, not just in the sense of like, Oh, I like this filmmaker or I like this kind of shooting or lighting over, but also just what factors have made you, you and have also led you to a certain point where you can respond to a film in a specific way. There's some bass that just picked up. <laughs> um, but, and, and, and this was something that I, that I kind of explain, um, my love of La La Land. La La Land, I, I saw it three times in the theaters. I bought it on Blu-ray, and I've watched it for a fourth time, you know, since I bought it. I, I loved that movie, and yet I completely understand people's complaints against that movie. But because of what was going on in my personal life at the time of seeing it, I was equipped to respond to it in the way that I did. So when it comes to Patterson, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm you know, between you, me, and, and my therapist, you know, a, a big thing which has been weighing on me recently is, uh, you know, uh, the idea of regret, that I'm running out of time, that I've, I, I haven't done enough in, in regards to seeing my creative projects come to fulfillment, and I'm um, working a job that I don't necessarily love, and I'm trying to get out, and I'm just kind of thinking, like, I'm so stagnant here, and I'm not doing anything, and I'm not leaving some legacy, and yet, and then along comes this movie, which is kind of telling me to, like, hey chill out because the poetry is still there the poetry is still there in your day-to-day -day routine in the subway that i take in the morning in the job that i work in the in the, the calls that i have with clients in 
sitting down and, and watching TV or and grabbing beers with friends, the poetry and the beauty and the art is still there. Just because I'm not necessarily engaging with it at all times doesn't mean it's going to leave. And it doesn't mean that I have to be in a specific time and place and circumstance in order to recognize it and appreciate it. And it's a matter of perception and of not thinking about it in terms of black and white, but just thinking of it in terms of it is, you know? I mean, time is going by, I'm getting older, that's not a good or a bad thing, that's just a thing that's happening. Why do I have to sign good assign goodness or badness to it. Just accept that it is. And realize that whether I write tonight or write tomorrow or write three years from now, it's still going to be valid. Um, and I, and I, was, I, was, I wrote a note here that I, I guess when I was watching this movie, I guess I finally understood, especially after that, that ending conversation with Patterson and, and that Japanese tourist, I finally kind of understand the idea of writing for the sake of writing. Um, that was never something that I was really on board with because, um, and, and it's still admittedly something that I kind of struggle with and, and, and have to work on, but it kind of seemed like, well, if I'm, if I'm not going to write for the sake of some type of tangible result, money, accolades, um, praise, advancement from one stage of my life to another. If I'm not going to get those things, what is even the point of doing it? And it's just, it's doing it. It's just to, to take part in it, to recognize that it's there and that it's always going to be there no matter how shitty or how great my day would be or how dramatic or regular, it's still there. And that's sort of how I'm, I'm sort of learning uh, to come to grips with this, this idea that um, of what writing for the sake of writing is. Um, just engaging with it is, is valid enough. And I think that that's something that the Patterson character uh, really gets. Um, and now that I've seen this movie, um, I, uh, I have to double down on and, and second uh, my my idea that I had with Kristen when we were talking about what films we'd like Jarmish to make, um, definitely would have been much more curious to see how Jarmish would have made Gar uh, Garden State than uh, Zach Braff. Um, because despite the, f the fact that Zach Braff came from New Jersey, there just seems to be an appreciation and understanding of a locality from Jarmish much better than uh, Zach Braff did. Or had, I should say, but... Um, if, uh, if you haven't seen Patterson, or you haven't want to see it again, uh, easy enough to get, get your hands on it. In fact, because it, it you know, double-edged sword, no, not double-edged sword, bittersweet, I guess, because it is relatively recent, having just come out in 2016, it is readily available, because it also, ha uh, is relatively recent, having just come out in 2016, it's also a little bit pricier than you might be used to. Um, it's available on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Fandango Now, Voodoo, the PlayStation Store, and the Microsoft Store for rental and purchase on all of those platforms, but if you're going to rent it, it's going to cost you a minimum of $6, um, and yet only about 15 if you want to buy it, which is actually cheaper than a lot of the titles I've covered on this show if you want to buy it, um, though more expensive if you want to purchase it. Um, 
But yeah, that's um, that's those are my thoughts on Patterson. Hopefully, uh, you responded in some way, uh, positively or negatively to it. Um, if you did, um, it's easy enough to get in touch with me. Uh, you do movies badly at gmail.com is how to uh, to drop me a line. Let me know uh, your thoughts on Patterson, on this episode, on Jarmish, on Kristen Sale, on Sloths, on really anything that that's on your mind. Feel free to shoot me a line. Um, you can leave comments on Facebook. It's just facebook.com slash I do movies badly. Find I do movies badly on the iTunes store. Find it on battleshipretention.com. Go to the podcast drop down menu and find my stuff there. Um, leave comments in the comment field. I check it on a fairly regular basis, so I always try and respond as, as swiftly as possible to both emails and to comments. Um, and then find me on Twitter at Nolan Fixes Teeth if you are so interested, though I don't know why you would be. So that does it for Patterson. Um, really excited about getting on with the the, the rest of these titles um so I, i'll say that that doesn't for for uh tonight uh, thank you for suffering through the sound quality for my um rambling as the the uh moisture leaves my brain and causes me to ramble on uh, as i am doing so so uh be sure to tune in next week where i'll be covering um kristen sales's favorite film dead man and will hopefully i will be just a little bit less ignorant This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.